Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, James Cameron's Sizek of Nobel here with my colleagues Jane Garza and Dr. Kim Perkins. We are members of Nobel, which is an organizational design firm that helps teams adopt new ways of working. Every month we take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations, what works, what doesn't, and most importantly, we talk about the simple tools that they and you our listeners can implement to make the workplace better. So at this point, I'm going to implement our traditional spoiler warning. We're going to be talking about all the plot points from Avatar. So if you haven't seen it, pause. See you in three hours. (laughs) (laughs) Just about, yeah. Is there anybody who hasn't seen this movie? This is like one of the top grossing movies of all time. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sure we'll get an angry comment. <laughs> Somebody hasn't seen it. Okay. Jane, why don't you tell us, a li- for, for those three people who haven't seen Avatar, could you please summarize it for us, Jane? Avatar is about a man who is sent to a moon called Pandora, and his mission is to speak with the tribe there and try to convince them to move their tribe so that the organization in the movie which we'll be discussing a bit rda resources development administration can get some really great um, unobtainium from their area and how would you how would you summarize this even even shorter so if you haven't seen avatar but you have seen pocahontas or dances with wolves it's basically one of those but in space (laughs) Dances with wolves in space. Yeah. It was, it was, you know, dances with blue people. Um, <laughs> Titanic on a spaceship. I guess it was, it was the moon. Oh yeah. So there were, there were lots of uh, dismissive summaries of this movie when it first came out, and still. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I actually wanted to talk a little bit about that. Uh, the reason why we're doing Avatar for this is because I think Avatar disappeared for a good 10 years from the public conscious. Or if people did remember, it was like, oh yeah, that was a thing. It came out. But just within the last couple of months, I feel like more people are talking about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's partly because the theme park, Pandora, recently opened and people are starting to go to that. And then two, I mean, we are getting to maybe a a year or two away from the sequels finally Mm -hmm. being released. Yeah, that's true. I think it's just an interesting and fascinating thing to think about because, Kim, you're right. This was like one of the biggest, I think it was the highest grossing movie ever Mm -hmm. still. Yeah, depending on how you you stack it, it was. Yeah, and yet uh, people remember very little detail about it and it's not really in the public eye except for, as you said, a, a little bit more recently. And I remember when it came out, it was really, it was so incredibly buzzy. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was one that I think my entire family went to at Christmas you know, and we were really excited that we were getting to see it at this point because it was all everybody was talking about. And then rewatching it for this podcast, I was like, 
wow, we were really excited. And what is this thing anyway? This seemed kind of long. Yeah. It's Dances with Wolves with Blue People. (laughs) I think that's another reason why we've been talking about it, too, is post-Oscars when we're thinking about those white savior films. You know, because we're thinking about Green Book versus, say, Black Klansmen. And so that trope of white savior, I don't think it was quite, I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't a thing, but I'm saying I don't think it was quite as much of the public consciousness 10 years ago. Yeah. We, we didn't have it like as defined and as clear of a thing to reference like oh another white savior movie yeah it wasn't how we talked about those movies just yet then no. yeah but similarly i saw this i don't know if we saw it around christmas but we did see it like with the whole family and we went to like a special 3d theater imax true imax theater to go see it was a big event um but yeah the upon relaunch the first 10 minutes i i gotta say the first time i saw it in theaters i i did not like it um and now watching it 10 years later the first 10 minutes i was watching it i was like why did i dislike this movie so much it's actually like the effects look pretty good it's a team in space sounds interesting and then it goes into like a thousand montages and a thousand really long battle scenes and yeah i just found it really boring i will admit having fallen asleep a little bit on my on this recent reviewing mm-hmm. but then i went kind of to go see what the plot synopsis was and i was like you know i didn't really miss that much yeah yeah, not that much happens for this long yeah. of a movie. So I want to do things a little bit differently than we usually analyze a film this time. And I want to look at two themes, which I think the movie is is really about, which comes down to motivation and negotiation. Because really, if you look at it, this is just a failed negotiation between people who want unobtainium and people who just want to live in their tree mm-hmm. uh, without people bothering them. Yeah. And they just they just couldn't come to a reasonable solution. They could not. So I wanted to kick it off by talking about an important part of negotiation, which is motivation. So, Kim, I'm looking at you. Um, why do people do things? <laughs> <laughs> what a great question. So, you know, people do things in, for several different reasons. They do things because there's a reward if they do it. They do things because there's a punishment if they don't do it. They do things because they just like doing the thing and it's a reward in itself. That's intrinsic motivation. And they do things in order to help other people, which somehow comes across to us as a reward or an end in itself. So in broad strokes, everybody does things. For Those are the reasons that everybody does stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are probably... And there are endless permutations of why. There, um, there are probably three dozen major theories of motivation that apply in different times and spaces. Mm-hmm. They have different uses, and, it, and they don't conflict with each other. Do they apply in the space of Pandora <laughs> in the time of this time Do they apply to mythical 12-foot beasts? Yeah. Beast humans? humanoids humanoids yes yes. let me get the right correct term so could you so um to bring it to like a real life example if we break it down by those three categories can you give us real examples of let's say my car is blocking yours for those three examples what would be three ways you would motivate me to move my car so i would if i was doing it reward rewards and punishment Mm -hmm. i would say if you don't block my car i'm going to call the cops and have them tow, tow it away don't want that right um or i would say if you you know that that would be the punishment one obviously Mm -hmm. if you can if you can get this um pull out within like 30 seconds i'll give you five bucks Mm -hmm. and these are both extrinsic these are both extrinsic Mm -hmm. um intrinsic would be that like 
hey, I bet this would be a cool game to see if you can get your car from here over to there. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. Let's see if you can do that. It'll be really fun <laughs> to measure yourself against this challenge, this parallel parking challenge. Um, and then pro-social would be like, hey, you know, I really need to get out because I'm in a real hurry. Could you just move your car? Mm-hmm. So helping uh, someone understand how it makes you feel or like how it affects you. Yeah, how what it what it is that, that this action will do for somebody else. And then people will, a surprising amount of the time, be like, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Because pro-social motivation, as Adam Grant has demonstrated, is very powerful. There's a lot of studies showing that that's one of the most powerful ways to motivate people, even to do things like raise money or hospital hand washing, you know, mm -hmm. putting up, they put up, uh, Adam Grant did an experiment early on in his career where he, um, with the hospital, put up a sign saying, um, wash your hands or else, hand washing did not increase. Put mm -hmm. up a sign saying, wash your hands so that your patients don't infect you, hand washing did not increase. Put up a sign saying, wash your hands so that you don't infect the patients, suddenly everybody's washing their hands. Mm. So I want to look at how the different leaders within the world of Avatar use different motivations to get people to do what they want. Um, and in particular, there's there's really three or four leaders that I wanted to look at. The first one is the colonel. I don't actually know like anybody's name outside of Jake Sully. They like this, this is a kind of a, a movie where who knows what the names are. It's just that guy. Yeah, this yeah. was so. This is like military bad guy standard issue, right? <laughs> like you can you can pretty much fill in the blanks. This is Colonel Miles Korich, and he's played by Stephen Lee. Yeah. So this is so this is we've got the colonel on one hand. Um, then you have Jake Sully. He is the he's the Marine grunt and our white savior. Um, and then to to a lesser extent, you also have uh, Grace. Grace. Grace Augustine. Yeah. Oh, that's Grace. Sigourney Weaver. Thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. And she is the one leading the scientific exploration. Mm. Um, and then last and actually kind of least are Neytiri's parents who mm -hmm. are the like warrior leader and shaman of of the people um, of the of the Navi. Mm -hmm. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> anyway, um, so I wanted to talk first a little bit about extrinsic rewards because I think that the colonel is like a classic example of somebody who is motivated by and motivates people by extrinsic rewards. He says, you know, look, you want legs? I will get you legs. Uh, you don't want this bad thing to happen? Don't do this thing. Like mm -hmm. he actually punches somebody at one point in time. Um, so I was just wondering if you guys had, had noticed any other examples of the colonel um, using extrinsic motivation to get people to do what he wants. Yeah, totally. He's being very transactional. And that's the whole style of leadership is where you're based on. It's called transactional leadership. No surprise. Mm -hmm. And it's based on you do the thing for me, I do the thing for you. And that's as far as it goes. We don't have to like each other. You don't, I don't have to be a role model. You're literally going to anything you're going to do, it's because of the reward. And and people who the style is, is fairly effective and it's used a lot. Um, and people who adhere to it just don't they honestly they just don't seem to see a lot of point in doing it any other way. This is there's a certain worldview that tends to go with that. Would it be like a military hierarchy worldview? <laughs> I'd say it would definitely be compatible with that. Yeah. What What is the context? Like, when is the best time for you to use more of a transactional uh, approach or for you to use extrinsic rewards? Well, first of all, when you've got a clear reward that somebody wants, that's not always the case. 
you know, and that's mm-hmm. a that's an, so an issue in a lot of our organizations now where you can't like promise somebody a promotion because we have such flat organizations. So what are you going to, you, maybe you don't have the budget to give them money. So what are you going to do? You can't offer, actually offer them a reward. So I'd say if you have a reward and you're pretty sure they want it and it's within your power, that could work. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting you bring up this idea of like, well, if, if you have something that they want, then you can do it because later in the film the again generic corporate bad guy says you know i don't know what to do we've we've offered them medicine we've offered them roads we've offered them education and they don't want any of it mm-hmm. yeah it's oh. so interesting because they really they can't get out of that transactional mindset mm-hmm. because you know and i say that this is a mindset because one of the hardest things that we routinely ask managers to do is to remember that people are motivated by things that they are not personally motivated by, right? We all are, we're motivated, the heart wants what it wants, right? And so we can't tell people what they ought to want. Right. And so it's very difficult in, in a place where this whole world is based on transaction. I mean, they're trying to get the unobtainium, not because unobtainium is so cool. It is cool. Well, it kind <laughs> of like, is. It's it like a float in that thing. Yeah, it like floats yeah. in the thing and it's, it's superconductor. <laughs> but it's not like it's rubies. They're going to do something instrumental with it, yeah. you know? And so this whole world is completely instrumental. And in that world, they've also shut themselves off from any other possibilities. So thinking of another way to motivate people is quite beyond their ma- imagination. I would also point out that the colonel is, not only is he transactional, but he is very reliable and we'll get into that in that he does deliver what he promises so a lot of times right Mm. you've got the bad guy who's kind of a trickster figure he's like oh yeah i'll give you this if you'll just do x but then he's like yoink right (laughs) i'm not that is what they say right that's definitely what they say yeah so so they're like oh you thought you were gonna get this but you're not gonna get it but no like he literally delivers on on everything that he promises and if you're a transactional leader that is how you gain power you know the lannisters always pay their debts right Mm, yeah i yes i'm nodding though i haven't seen that show so yes (laughs) the lannisters have hidden agendas which he doesn't have too much of true it's interesting yeah, the other thing that I thought was interesting about this is you you mentioned um, military operations. And in those situations, there's like an extra layer of things where there's a purpose, like the purpose is to protect your country. Um, and you're going into it with that perspective. But the people that are working for this colonel, they don't have this higher purpose. They're there to just find a resource that helps them. It's a superconductor, right? But it's not going to save like the human population or anything like that. So I found it interesting that they... What's the motivation for them to go risk their lives every single day for this transactional leader without that extra level of purpose? That, that's totally right. I I really like that as a, as a way of kind of showing up the the corruption of this system. And I think that that's something that people talk about, you know, like in a military industrial complex, mm-hmm. even when things have gotten to the point where it's just a system trying to sustain itself mm-hmm. and any um, pro-social purpose that it might have once had has been, gone by the wayside. Jane, that actually sparks another idea in that the entire purpose of bringing in Jake and the scientific crew is that they're supposed to be winning over the hearts and minds of the Na'vi, right? Mm-hmm. Like they they will use force if necessary, but they're going to try and be nice and compromise and figure out some way that they can get them to move away from their home so they can just get to this unobtainium. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what you guys think. Is it possible to win over hearts and minds when you're using a very transactional form of leadership? 
Mm, I mean, I think it definitely li- limits your ability because you are you are looking at those extrinsic rewards rather than what how will this personally reward you doing this thing for me? Yeah, you're you might be able to win minds from kind of a logical perspective, mm-hmm. but you'd better the they'd better want the art outcome too in order to get hearts. It's going to be a lot harder. Yeah, because also there's going to be you know the thing about transactional situations is that you don't need to really have a high degree of trust. You don't have to have the multi-dimensional mm-hmm. kind of trust that we talk about, where we think about vulnerability and authenticity. All you need is just the Are you going to hold up your end of the bargain mm-hmm. and give me the thing if I do the thing? So that's like, uh, you know, we were talking about motivation theories earlier. That's like expectancy theory, which is if I do, can I do the thing? If I do the thing, will I get the thing I want? Um, and those are really the questions that people ask. Yeah. And I like how you're bringing up these questions about what trust means. And we will get to that later. All right. Uh, but right now I want to I want to take a look at some other extrinsic rewards. Um, so looking at Jake. So when he first signs up for this this crazy mission, right? Um, I think he is also using he he's motivated by extrinsic rewards. He wants legs. He is mm-hmm. paraplegic, and he just really wants his legs back. And they want him not because they think he's great, but because he shares the DNA with the Avatar. Yep, his brother died. I think the yes. Avatar is made for his brother, and the brother mm-hmm. died, and he's the identical twin. So mm-hmm. same, same. Yeah. Except for the total lack of training. Yeah. <laughs> Details. Details. Yeah. Um, so I was just wondering what you guys think of Jake at the very beginning of the movie. Does his transactional, like, I'm just I'm just here for legs, um, does that predisposition you to liking him? What mm. was your what was your take on him? I think it's fair enough. I think you can be motivated by whatever motivates you, and I don't think there's a right answer. I do think that it brings up an interesting point for leaders and that there's a he his motivation changes over the course of the movie and it's an important thing to remember that while you may build relationships with your staff and understand their motivations early on that can change over time depending on what they're working on and what the purpose of what they're working on is and being able to check in on that motivation is like what will make you a good manager when things start to go by the wayside yeah i i guess when you put it that way actually it is because jake's motivations change Mm -hmm. right at first he's just there for the legs and at the end he's there for the girl for the love (laughs) and for the purpose and mission the pro-social part yeah of saving the navi yeah and so maybe if the colonel had done more check-ins um this this whole misunderstanding could have been you know avoided what what a messy (laughs) yeah well well i think the the thing about the colonel too is he doesn't understand I think in across the board, there are two teams in this movie that have completely different motivations and completely different priorities, and they don't try to understand each other's priorities. So besides the Navi versus RDA, there's also like the research team versus the muscle team. Subcultures. Yeah, exactly. And the research team is there to, to research. They want to learn more about the community, but the... The muscle is just kind of like waiting for the research team to get their job done. So they're trying to speed up the process. And their their whole priority, I feel like, from top to bottom is just speed. They want to get this job done as quickly as possible. Yeah, the, the scientific team is kind of more intrinsically motivated. This is really fascinating. Knowledge is an end in itself. Mm-hmm. Let's learn more about this. They've invested a lot of, of time and energy just probably pursuing their own fascination with this situation. But for the um, military team, it's really just instrumental. 
Mm-hmm. We don't really care about these people. We don't really care about all the cool things they do. We just want nuggets of information that will help us um, command and control better. So I think this actually brings up a great point about incentives and alignment. Because at one point, again, a standard issue corporate bad guy points out that, hey, all of your science is paid for by this unobtainium. This is why we're here, unobtainium. Because this little gray rock sells for 20 million a kilo. That's the only reason. It's what pays for the whole party. It's what pays for your science. Comprendo? And so how do you guys think that affects what takes priority and what what essentially wins between these two teams and how they operate? Well, speaking as somebody trained in science, I would say that it it would be hard for me to say that the money doesn't win out because it does. You know, people will pay. Research is expensive. There are certain things people will pay for. Um, you try to put on as many other things that you it interest you and that you think will advance the science while you're getting paid for the one thing that they're interested in, whether or not that's the real point of your study. If your team is motivated by money, right? If, if everybody's getting paid and you're getting a paycheck and you're bonus driven, how does that impact your culture and how does that impact your the strategies that you're going to make as a team? Mm, I think the interesting thing is to think about where that comes into conflict with other teams. So for example, the security team's mission in the movie is driven by speed and maybe money, like get this job as quickly done as quickly as possible so we can get paid and go back home. The research team is motivated by getting knowledge and therefore it slows down. It, it definitely comes in conflict with the security team. It ends up slowing them down, which kills their number one priority. So I think thinking about like if it's money first, how does that come in conflict with the, let's say, product team where it's not money first, it's like um, fit for the customer first is our priority. Yeah, I think that's right, is is that different teams are essentially motivated by different things. And, you know, you people often think that it's obvious that money should motivate everybody, and it just mm-hmm. doesn't. I mean, study after study has shown that you can't pay for creativity. Right. Right. You can't just say, I will pay you more if you're more creative or be creative to get this prize. It doesn't work that way. So, so even though it seems sensible that everybody should come down and operate this way, that is not how humans operate. And that's not how your different teams operate. And one of the things that we've heard over and over from companies that work with us is that they are really interested in how to figure out how to get people who are motivated by very different things to play nicely together. We hear that a lot from from the salespeople who really just want to make make their cash and get out. But we really want everybody to be mission driven. So how do we make the salespeople be mission driven? Mm-hmm. You know, and that and you like I said, you can't make people want what they want. You can show them how awesome it is. You can show them how doing what you want gets them what they want. But you can't tell them what they ought, ought to want. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about intrinsic rewards then. If you can't pay people for creativity, which is Really annoying. I wish I could do that. But if you, can't, <laughs> if you can't pay people, so what does motivate people? Like, let's talk about intrinsic rewards. First, in terms of, of Avatar, what sort of intrinsic motivations do you see that the characters have? Well, I think one intrinsic motivation is keeping the Navi from being bulldozed over. They ideally want to help this community like from completely being destroyed. And part of the reason why, if you haven't seen the movie, is that uh, it's not only the people that are there, but it's also like the plants and the trees and stuff play a part in their community. Um, there's like a, a network. I'm not going to go into explaining the whole thing, but there's a network that connects all of them. And so it's figuring out how to keep that from being destroyed while still getting the RDA their 
their unobtainium. Yeah, all that stuff is fascinating. It's fascinating as an end in itself, but it's also, you know, pro-social. But it's it's an, an end in itself. So I would agree that it's it's intrinsic for the science team. Other ways that people are, are motivated, you know, I, I, I think about the, I'm thinking about the science team being intrinsically motivated mostly. Yeah, they, I mean, they are passionate about knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Yeah. Right. They're, they have a very pure motivation, which is like, let's collect samples. And oh, it'll be so cool. Yeah. Like, oh, we've, we've got to explore, like, how does the society work? And um, what what does this do? And, oh, my gosh, look at all these different animals uh, with, mm-hmm. with six limbs. What is the getting, evolution? Getting the language just right, just as an end in itself. Yeah. yeah. And geeking out over, like, the certain types of mountains and stuff. Yeah. On the other team, there's actually, I mean, the hired guns are motivated. They seem to have a lot of fun doing what they're doing. There's, like, one particular character that I don't think has a name, but he's, like, bald and very muscly, and he's just having a blast oh, the whole time. Oh, movie. that narrows it down. Yes, I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, but that's totally true is that I think with a lot of a lot of military stuff and war games and, you know, quote unquote, protecting people is very much an intrinsic motivation for doing it because you get to play with the big toys and blow things up and feel powerful. And that's definitely an intrinsic motivation thing. Mm -hmm. I found one really interesting intrinsic motivation was the colonel explaining why and how he got his scars. Right. Three tours in Nigeria, not a scratch. I come out here, day one. Think I felt like a shaved tail, Louie? Yeah. Well, they could fix me up if I rotated back and make me pretty again. But you know what? I kind of like it. it. Reminds me every day what's waiting out there. In a strange way, it is a very humble motivation right it, it it reminds him of his purpose and it keeps him grounded mm-hmm. yeah and that 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 danger and that protecting people from danger is very powerful intrinsic motivation that's a real thing for keeping people alive yeah there was also one more motivation which kim we'd had a discussion earlier this week about like the the dark side of pro-social mm-hmm. right and so i wanted to get your insight onto this one which is that at the end of the so throughout the movie, the colonel's motivation is pretty clear. He's he's there to like get the unobtainium for the company and to keep as most people alive as possible. That's that's pretty much it, right? Like that's what he's here to do. Um, but at the end, I think his motivation actually shifts, and he just wants to get revenge on Jake. Yeah. For screwing everything up. So I'm wondering if you would consider getting revenge an intrinsic reward or is that more of a pro-social award? Because you're you're doing it for somebody else, kind of. Oh, that's a great question. I love that question. I would say I would put that solidly on the intrinsic side. Okay. Because the, the real reward is an internal state of yours, you mm-hmm. know, is that you feel that justice has been done. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, we haven't really talked about justice as a motivating factor, but but that's that's intrinsic because it's not really something that happens on the outside. Um, a lot of, it, you know, we think about intrinsic motivation. It's like um, flow states, you know, where you get really deep into doing an activity and it's reward into itself. And people call that a peak experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, oh, there's a, a certain feeling of justice being of carrying out justice and carrying out revenge that doesn't really have much to do with the people it's ostensibly benefiting, yeah. but it's more about you, how you feel on the inside. 
I, speaking of that, one of the thoughts I had while watching this movie was, is this just what happens when a team is bored out of their minds? Like the security mm. team is there to just wait until the research team is ready to move the Navi or, you know, makes the right connection with the Navi so that the security team can go in and do their job. And the whole time they're just waiting. And I think out of that frustration, this war is born. You know, I have to say, I think that's a really interesting perspective. I have a... Um, a friend who's a history professor at Northridge who has written extensively about the role of boredom in the English colonization of the world and that so many things, uh, that so much of what was done in terms of colonization was done just because people were bored and they wanted to get more involved and they didn't have anything to do and there was no they were waiting around for things to you know missives to come from the queen and so they took up upon themselves to do a bunch of things which ended up being really hurtful so like oh, interesting netflix and colonization <laughs> netflix and colonization <laughs> We've talked a little bit about how motivations can change over time, even for an individual. We've talked about how your motivations might be different from somebody else's motivations. So if you are a leader and you want somebody to do a thing, what what's the plan? Right? What would we recommend to leaders that they do before approaching this person? Well, the first thing to do is find out what the person wants. How would you, know, you do that? Find out what's important to them. Well, with any luck they're not a complete stranger to you with any luck you've been talking to them before and you've been talking to them kind of in a regular way hopefully if you have a direct report maybe on some one-on-ones the one-on-ones that we recommend have um questions about you know what it's really what's really engaging for you right now what are you really interested in and what kind of what what's the work that's happening that you're like oh god i hate this and that way you'll get kind of an idea of their preferences and a little bit of an idea of their motivations and from there you could use kind of our thought about whether it's extrinsic rewards or internal feeling states or pro-social to see what probably gets uh their motor running and then you and then use that based on what you know of them yeah i i just add that like after that point i think there's also you need to spend some time figuring out what the win-win is and i don't think rda does that i think they're just like no we want the nami navi to move so we can get their resources and that's what we want end of story but there's no real um, compromise that that, that's a, that's a really good point because I think that they're they're so deep in the idea of, of uh, you know that co- sort of colonial idea mm-hmm. which is that we have the power so we make the rules mm-hmm. and you're and we have the power to compel you to do what we want and therefore we're not really we would be happy to make a trade if we could get it within our mindset but we're not really asking this we're not really <laughs> asking we are not asking yeah Yeah, that actually is a really great segue into talking about negotiation, right? So you have figured out, um, like, all right, I have some, I have some idea of what they want. Um, I know what I want. And obviously, it's the more important thing. Um, But what's the right way to approach a negotiation? Big question. So I'll paint it in broad strokes. And you guys jump in and ask examples. Mm hmm. So the first thing you, the first thing is knowing what you want, and that sounds obvious, but sometimes we don't know exactly what we want, and so being able to put that into words is number one. Um, the second thing is thinking about what you know about what they want, because really all you're trying to do is to find some overlap between something that you want and something that they want. So that doesn't always mean necessarily an exchange. What that might mean is some, a shared outcome that both of you want. So let me pause you a second there Absolutely. and say. Let's say that uh, we'd been brought in for the negotiation team with mm-hmm. with the Navi. Again, they don't want roads. They don't want medicine. They don't want education. What do you think 
they want? Like, what is something that RDA could offer them, um, which would agree, which would move them towards collaboration? Autonomy. What does that mean? They want to be left alone. They want it to be one and done. They want you out of here. Mm, Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good angle. I was thinking like, uh, I mean, in the beginning, I think they're not really willing to have the conversation. But once Jake befriends them, um, they're a little bit more willing to potentially negotiate and figure out some compromise. And I think at that point, it seems like they would be game to like brainstorm on a solution together. Is there a way that we can give you a pipeline or whatever it is to make this so that we don't have to move our entire community in the place that we've inhabited for hundreds of years in order for you to get your unobtainium? Yeah, exactly. Maybe there's a way you can kind of tunnel in from the side without like messing with the tree. Yeah. You know? No, I think you raise a good point, which I'd totally forgotten. So when they when they first meet Jake, they are dismissive and Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, my God, another one. Why did you come to us? Came to learn. We have tried to teach all the sky people. It is hard to fill a cup which is already full. Yeah, it does. It does actually imply that the Navi are more open to collaboration uh, than certainly RDA thinks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, go ahead. I was going to say the other thing I would add is that there's a potential to to speak with them about like what the purpose of this is. Why do we want an obtainium, and how can we make that something that you care about too? If it if it's our only source of transportation back home or whatever it is, there might be some convincing that you can do beyond just like no we need this resource and we have the muscle to get it i mean and that's what really if you'd like take a mba class on negotiation half of it is usually to try to get you out of a competitive mindset where you're trying to get more out of the deal than the other party and into a win-win mindset because that's generally how you can extract the most total value from a deal and that and to do that that means understanding what the other person's important to them and being able to see both sides and not see the division between both sides. And that's what, when I talk about a shared outcome, that's like, what is it that we both want? And that's our biggest lever. To recap, <laughs> when you're negotiating, one, you figure out what is it that I want, which can be tricky. Two is figuring out what do they want. Three is sort of coming to an, a shared understanding of like what a win-win could be. What's next? Yeah. So the next thing that usually we suggest is that people should think about what's an alternative to a negotiated agreement. So in other words, if negotiations break down, what are you going to do to get satisfied? So if you are RDA, you're just going to bulldoze the shit out of that planet, which is not great, right? That's something that military powers can do, but that generally we in our own lives cannot. Right. Luckily, probably. Um, but but the thing is that thinking about what you'll do to get satisfied takes some of the pressure off of the actual negotiation and gives you the mental wherewithal to be able to think more deeply about your partner, knowing that you have an alternative rather than everything depends on us coming to an agreement right now. Is there a flip side of negotiation? Like, how does how does escalation play into this? Because, again, the the colonel shows restraint when he is essentially invading the navi right so he he starts out by saying well compromise didn't work so first we're going to hit them with gas right that should get them moving Mm -hmm. okay they're still they're still resisting okay now we're going to hit them with incendiaries okay they're still resisting destroy everything Mm -hmm. so how does how does escalation play into into compromise or, or negotiation if, if it does. 
I think that people escalate all the time unwittingly. You know, things escalate. What happens a lot of times in conversations is that people have a lot of assumptions about what's going on or they um, imply mm -hmm. some emotional content that is threatening to their identity. Or there are a lot of people who are kind of jerks in negotiation, play hardball, who will try to undermine your identity to throw you off in order to get um, the upper hand, you know, so these things happen. And so I'd say that in the kind of, the, you know, we, again, we're not really doing the geopolitical thing so much, but in the kinds of negotiation that we might run across, we have to be um, aware of ways that we might unwittingly escalate things um, in ways that do not serve us, do not serve our long-term mm -hmm. goal. Yeah. I was going to say, just building off that, I think we might give the same advice that we do around um, receiving feedback. So like when you're going back and forth in negotiation, trying to depersonalize it a bit and assuming positive intent so that you're not out of context, making up reasons for why people are choosing certain decisions and asking for more context. Like why why can't we find an agreement? What is the, what is, what is the thing that you need? And digging a little deeper. Yeah, when people are doing sort of that that implica implied undermining that they do in, in negotiation, just like you would do if it was feedback, is you kind of call it out and you say, what do you mean by that? This is what I heard. What do you mean by that? And you put it back on them to, mm -hmm. to explain themselves, which often makes them back down. Yeah, so I think we've just sort of resolved the, the entire movie of Avatar in like what was that 20 27 minutes no um i hope no. they listen but before the sequel comes out let, let me just call james cameron <laughs> sure he'll he'll be really receptive to feedback um no so so actually let's let's talk more about leadership we mentioned earlier this idea of transactional leadership which is uh i have something i will give it to you you want something right like we we do a trade um i love it because it's it's defined as carrot and stick and at one point the colonel actually says i didn't make up the rules so just find me a carrot that'll get them to move otherwise it's gonna have to be all stick okay <laughs> so yeah, i exactly i feel like maybe somebody was googling the same things that i was <laughs> um but okay so so there's another type of leadership that we talk about a lot which is transformational leadership so what what does that mean and do you guys see it reflected at all in the leadership in avatar yeah great one transformational leadership is um basically what you're doing is you're investing in the people around you um you're trying to inspire them you're role modeling for them um and you for a transformational leader this is not this is more than a transaction this is more than a paycheck you're really trying to get uh, something mission oriented done and so you the vision of what can be is what's bringing everybody along and um, helping everybody to do more than they originally had a capacity for mm -hmm. yeah i see it a little bit i would say in Sigourney Weaver i think she tries to translate her uh, excitement about the project that we're on to Jake and tries to be his mentor not right off the bat I think once she realizes he's not like I think she initially is like he's a dryhead whatever and then as they develop a relationship she seems to try to be more of a, a mentor oh see I thought of it as Jake when he became the Taruk Mokhtar <laughs> <laughs> I've been practicing my now <laughs> that was so good yeah well done no uh you know he he goes out and, you know, he how to train your dragon. He goes and, and lands the biggest, yes. uh, most intimidating dragon of all. And this is this is something that convinces all of the tribes to unite together. Um, so do you guys have any examples 
of your own personal Taruk Makto? Or have you, <laughs> have you seen when leaders, like what's, what does this look like in real life if not, you know, flying a giant dinosaur, dragon? I mean, I think we often see it in our clients who are leading change. I think you have to have a bit of this in order to inspire people to get on board with your message. And we've seen some really inspirational leaders do exactly this and get people on board with them. Though change is hard, get them on board to go along this journey with them for that outcome that, that they as the leader envision. Yeah. I mean, I you know, I, I think that I've had a, a – there was a leader who I was working with who was – very inspirational to me personally. Uh, she was actually my coaching client, but she was very mission driven and she really wanted to do the, the change, the vision that she had and what she was trying to accomplish in her organization. You could, her commitment and passion about this was really palpable. I mean, the downside, I studied passion for my dissertation and, and the downside of passion is you can drive yourself nuts with this stuff. So it's not a comfortable place to be. You know, people always want to pursue their passion. I'll just tell you, pursuing your passion is not comfortable. But she was so passionate about her cause that she really, there's something about her emotional tenor that just made you think differently about this. It was like she just kind of reached out and grabbed you by the heart and you said, okay, what do you need? I will do this for you. And so really the best transformation in leaders, it's not so much that they're personally charismatic, like they're so cool that you're like, oh, wow, I'm just blown away. It's more that they're so passionate about what they're doing that you can't help but be swept in up in the beautiful vision of this and you end up giving more to it than you thought. Mm -hmm. The last type of leadership that I saw, and you guys can certainly jump in and, and add more, is actually this laissez-faire type of leadership, which is very hands-off. I mean, that's that's literally, you know, let it let it be. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that the parents of Neytiri, again, the leaders were pretty hands off. Like they when Jake entered, they were like, all right, Neytiri, you're going to train him up. Yeah. And go for it. Good yeah. luck. <laughs> yeah. Like I didn't see a real cadence of check ins established to make sure he was hitting milestones. They Where's did. the OKRs on this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I didn't necessarily see a vision statement for what, but um, so I was wondering if you guys had noticed either other examples of like laissez-faire leadership or if you had noticed other types of leadership within the movie. I'd agree. I think you're right that they're very hands off and it's kind of an interesting version of a, a tribe or community. Um, but I think it's partly because they're, I don't know the name of this, but they're like version of Mother Nature is more of their leader than the actual tribe leaders, it seems like. Awa. Awa. I hate myself for knowing <laughs> all of this stuff. Well, yeah, I would agree with Jane. I would say that, that they didn't have to be so personally checking in because they have such an incredibly strong culture that the culture itself tells you what you ought to do mm -hmm. and tells you what the rules are and tells you how to behave. And so once you have built that that kind of... Um, culture that everybody knows and that um, that everybody can kind of make those strategic even over type decisions for themselves based on the culture then you don't have to be um, have as heavy touch as a leader is that what you want like should that be the ultimate goal of a leader to remove themselves and, and let culture do the work I think there's a lot to that in a lot of ways now the problem of course in in for you know, this is a culture that is based on nature, which takes thousands of years to change significantly, you know, minus the bulldozers that showed up, of course. Right. But um, in our organizations, things are changing much more quickly than that. And we may not have the luxury of just letting the culture do it for us the way people who lived in slower times did. 
slackers. I know. One of the other really interesting topics or themes that I saw running this movie was the question of trust. Right? There's there's a line where Jake is trying to save the people, the Navi, from destruction, um, and he's trying to convince them to leave Home Tree, and he's he's got to convince first of all RDA to let him go in and negotiate with them, and then he has to convince the Navi that they should leave their their tree or they're going to get killed, and he says, "Let me try and talk them out. They trust me," and so I want to talk a little bit about. How do you establish trust as a leader? Because we hear this question all the time from leaders at every level, right? How do I get people to trust me? So I wanted to talk about, one, how does Jake get them to trust him? And two, what are what are those elements of trust? How can I, as a leader, get people to believe in my what I say? Yeah. Um, I think Jake builds trust by first learning their ways rather than changing them before he learns how they operate. I, I've seen leaders make the mistake of doing it the opposite way where they're new and they're like, I see all these things that should happen, that should change, but they don't take the time to make their people really feel like they heard them and see how they're currently getting their work accomplished. And that can have a really negative effect or people feel like you didn't even listen to us before you tried to enact all these changes. Absolutely. That listen first and uh, talk later is a great way to do trust. And so I would say like in broad strokes, what you to get people to trust you is to show them that you understand where they're coming from and what's important to them. Yeah. And then once they feel that you understand them, then they will be able to listen to what you have to say because they will perceive that you have, well, both you've made the effort, but that you understand their world a little bit better. Yeah. There's also a big lesson around breaking trust in Avatar because mm. Jake wins their trust, but then shares this big secret of like, oh yeah, I've known all along that we were going to bulldoze you guys. And that lack of transparency is what loses their trust in him, like almost 100%. They're like, you knew all along and you didn't tell us, and now all of a sudden you want us to move. When I first saw this movie, again, 10 years ago, I was so angry at Jake because I'm like, he's just a sellout, right? Like, he, he sells out the Navi for a pair of legs, and then he sells out humanity you know, to get with the hot blue chick. Yeah. Um, I, I was personally very frustrated. I was like, pick a side, Jake. Yeah. <laughs> pick a side. <laughs> I agree. He has this annoying quality where whoever he's in the room with is the person that he's like backing at the moment, which is really and that is and That is not a leadership quality, right? Yeah. That's one of the things that people really hate about leaders. Yeah. So we talk about reliability, right? Are you are you consistent? Do you mm. do you do the do things you walk you say? your talk? Are yeah. you being authentic? And I would say no, he is not. Yeah. Um, vulnerability. That's another thing which yeah. is is really important to leaders. And I actually thought that again, the colonel showed a lot of vulnerability in that on multiple occasions he like jumps into the poisonous gas atmosphere and is willing to do what needs to be done. And again, he shows his scars. He he isn't perfect. Uh, so I was just wondering what else what else looks like vulnerability? How can you as a leader, if you're not jumping into a poisonous gas environment, what are some more uh, office office uh, related yeah. opportunities to show <laughs> who you are? I, fun question. I think Jake from the very beginning says like. I think he makes a mistake with some animals and they attack him and then Neytiri's like, you're an idiot, you're a baby. Um, and he's like, yeah, I don't know, so show me. I think that's part of vulnerability. 
(laughs) (laughs) I think that's part of vulnerability is being able to say when you don't know something and asking people for help. And even if you're a leader. And related to that is this concept of openness, right? It is is admitting when you don't know. It's admitting that things could go wrong. Again, the colonel does a really good job in the briefing. Everyone on this base, every one of you is fighting for survival. That's a fact. There's Aboriginal horde out there massing for an attack. Now, these orbital images tell me that the hostiles' numbers have gone from a few hundred to well over 2,000 in one day. And more are pouring in. In a week's time, there could be 20,000 of them. At that point, they will overrun our perimeter. Well, that's not going to happen. Our only security lies in preemptive attack. We will fight terror with terror. Opening up as a leader, admitting you don't have all the answers, it's not going to be perfect, is ironically a really great way to get people to trust you more yeah and it it extends your mission so in the like you mentioned in the onboarding the colonel says as head of security it is my job to keep you alive i will not succeed not with all of you and because of that it extends his mission to the other people like okay it's my job to keep you alive i won't be able to do it myself you're gonna have to play a part in it too yeah, that's really good. I mean, there's reasons why, you know, the military is probably the most studied organization in the world. And everything we know about organizations in some way or form descends from study of the military. I mean, you know, going back to Max Weber and beyond. Mm. So we may, we can say what we want to about the military, but they do a great job with leadership when there's high stakes um, and it's far more pro-social and emotional than you than people often give it credit for. I want to ask a more ethical question, larger than the movie. So we've just had this conversation about the colonel and Jake. And I would argue, again, this when I first saw the movie, especially by the end, I was so frustrated with Jake and his character. I loved the colonel because at the end, he wants to kill Jake, right? Like he wants to destroy the tree and he wants to get the unobtainium and he wants to destroy Jake and he will let nothing stop in his way. And that's a very admirable characteristic. He is a leader. Again, he's more transactional, but he does what he says he's going to do. He's reliable. He's open. And yet there's no question that he is the bad guy who is totally <laughs> destroying a world. So so what's your take on having a really effective leader doing really terrible things? You know, it's a that is a fantastic question. And I think that if we look around our world, we'll see a lot of that. You know, we'll see people who are good leaders who have terrible missions. And we'll see a lot of people who are terrible leaders who have amazing missions. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I say terrible, I mean, not just in, I don't mean ineffective, I mean, um, toxic. So the, the leadership is amoral, in a way, you know, you can you can be carrying out a mission that is uh, completely antisocial, doing it very effectively and having people on board. The the thing that that just brought up for me is that with great power comes great responsibility, basically. Mm-hmm. Like you have to realize that if you are a leader and you're good at it, um, there is that tension that you have to think about what what effect do you have on the environment outside of your organization or the people that are inside your organization, how you work with them, how their work life um, takes shape, and also what you end up doing to the outside world. Like 
we can ha- we have an obvious example in Facebook recently, right? I don't think they set out to do what they're doing now, but that's where it got to. Is it possible? Is there a version of Avatar where the Colonel was brought around to a different point of view? I think the Colonel would have to have somebody higher up from him decide that abetting the Navi society or giving them their autonomy was more important than than the unobtainium. And then I think he would totally go for it. Yeah. I'd also say I don't think he's the type of, I think he's uh, the type of person that likes to execute. And if you give him something to execute in the meantime, while he's waiting for this other thing to happen, that could be a good way of letting him continue to make progress. I think he's frustrated because he's just like waiting, hands tied. Yeah. I think he'll carry out his orders, whatever they are. So. Mm-hmm. So I was also curious, it's been about 10 years. It came out in 2009. Do we think that Avatar has affected how companies think about tech at work or work in any other meaningful way? And I can give you an example. I um, read this article on HBR and it came out in 2011. And there's a quote in it that says, in fact, the Gartner Group predicts that 80% of us will use an Avatar at work by the end of 2011. Well, that didn't happen. I know. I just thought that was amazing that we thought that that might happen. I remember the the second life boom and everybody thought we were going to be doing that. And then we didn't. Thank God. That was one one social media trend we were able to avoid. I did see an interesting YouTube video about the theme park and how they're making it more immersive. And so the employees at at Disney are like they come up with backstories, right? Mm -hmm. Like the idea is that they are... They are now employees of RDA, and they're welcoming people to this planet, so you're, you're playing a role. Mm-hmm. And similarly, with the new Star Wars land, they're going to be adapting a similar immersive take on it, in that you're, like, you are, if you work there, you're a, you're a Star Wars person, and you might have relationships to the existing characters, and you, come, you create this own backstory. And I think it's a really experience, a unique experience for both the people who are going to visit as well as the employees, right? You're being asked to be creative and to take ownership, but also to very much play a role. Like this is, this is at this point, not just serving the customer, but it is acting at the same time. And so I think, I think that's a very interesting development in, in how we expect employees to serve our customers' needs. That's really fascinating. Yeah, That's super a, interesting. We're yeah. entering the age of West Wing, or West, we're entering West the world. age of West World. From West Wing to West World. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting how those um, environments develop over time. Yeah. The last thing that I would just want to say about this is is thinking about authenticity, you know? One thing that really struck me in the movie was that nobody seemed to be really worried about the split between um, Jake's human body and how and, and that aspect of an identity and the one uh, when he's one of the Navi you know first of all I wondered when he slept because he didn't ever seem to have any time off mm-hmm. I don't think he did yeah I mean that will make you nuts but um you know if you're in the in the beginning when he's in his Navi body there's a lot he's not saying and are they you know are they just taking him at, at his word as how, who he is in the Navi body but they because they don't seem very, to be very inquisitive about what has gone before, you know? And it's that, is that really kind of like a split personality? I mean, because in the beginning, he's like really excited because he's getting in with these people and that's mm-hmm. a certain lack of authenticity that he would be showing to them because he's got an agenda for them that they don't know about, you know? Right. The young warrior who's supposed to be engaged in Neytiri 
he is very skeptical. And at one point he's like, these are demon bodies. And he attempts to kill Jake. And I mean, yeah, like that would be really creepy if you suddenly powered off and people just stopped <laughs> in front of you. But I was wondering, I mean, maybe the Navi wouldn't want to do that. But what would it be like if you could do it the other way and have one of the Navi go into a human body and in the spaceship in the rd no land. no no that's you don't creepy. want to see you don't want to see no. that you don't want to see that no, movie that really creeps me out i'm like that's <laughs> but maybe we'll see it in yeah. avatar two three four and five <laughs> call I up bet, james give him a hint so. all right well that's all the time we have for today but if you enjoyed this then please like subscribe leave us a rating um, or you can always reach out to us at heart at nobl.io or find more of our episodes at workoffiction.fm. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Work of fiction.